So today on the CoachCast podcast, myself and Ash are joined by Matt McKinney's Watson. Hopefully I pronounced that right. So thanks for joining us, Matt. Really appreciate it, buddy. Thank you very much for having me on, guys. <laughs> appreciate no you guys getting there. me on. No, no, it's great. So we've been kind of firing a few messages back and forth. We've had a few chats over, over Zoom during, during lockdown and stuff like that. So, and I was... I like the way kind of your mind thinks around plyos. It's it's a little bit different to an extent to kind of what's already out there. And I know we've talked kind of off air saying that you know, my favorite quote, I'm just going to put it out there from the start, is you can't always just quote Verkashansky when it comes to plyos. Okay. <laughs> so with that, I know that's, and it's like there's not much out there necessarily in plyos. Like we were saying how much kind of you get asked about plyos, where to go. There's not loads out there. So I think you obviously doing your, your PhD in plyos is, is awesome. So I actually want to get into some of the nitty gritty today with that, but I'm going to start off pretty plain and simple for maybe some people that aren't well-versed in, in pliers and things like that, and just start out really basic and go, why are plyometrics important for athletes? And what physical qualities like do they develop? Yeah, so I, I think that actually it's not, it's, it's not a simple question in that I think that a lot of people kind of need to constantly reiterate this sort of question in their own mind. Uh, I like to kind of do that with the simplest, like, what is, why are we using strength training or why are we using speed training? Like, what what are we hoping to get out of this as a, as a training method? And biometrics for me is becoming more and more about just general locomotion and being able to move, whether that's at very high velocities, um, whether it's change of direction, whether it's being able to turn on a dime, whether it's being able to, to lunge and get out of that position. And plyometrics themselves, I think, provide um, an athlete the capacity to move very well in a, in a locomotive sense. Um, so, and what I mean by locomotive is, is, is pretty plain and simple in that we are we are putting our foot in the ground uh, and and applying force in a certain direction to to send our body that way. Um, and I think plyometrics is a really uh, useful way uh, of teaching you how to utilize kinetic energy. So if we are moving at speed um, and we decide to kind of change direction, um, or we, as I said before, we lunge um, to avoid an opponent, then there is a landing strategy there that then needs to be um, assorted in a way that is either going to beat the opponent or is going to get you to that outcome goal that you are hoping. Um, so, yeah, plyometrics is is primarily about landings and takeoffs. And if you can sit there and list down how many movements within sport have a landing and a takeoff, I think you're going to be there for for a while. And and I would almost say that most movements. Um, with a landing and a takeoff can be, can be plyometric in, in some format. Um, now, th there obviously is a lot of discussion around the time frames in which you need to be on the ground for. Um, there is also a lot of discussion around high forces with plyometrics. And I think plyometric spectrum it is growing um, and, and we're, we're looking at a lot more lighter versions. We have the older stuff where there's very, very high loads and the, the old stuff of looking at, you know, high acceptance of eccentric forces. Um, and, and that stuff does come from Dr. Yuri Verkashansky um, and, and the old Russian methods. But we're, we're kind of now creating a spectrum, I think. Um, and those hundreds of thousands of movements within sport that have a landing and a takeoff, I think, fit nicely along that spectrum. 
um, and we 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 kind of look at the gold standard being under well uh, Schmidt Bleacher is the only man ever to have said that it should be under 0.25 of a second um, within research and now everyone is like well it has to be I don't know why but we, we just have to categorize everything that that's under that as plyometric um, I've struggled personally to find other good resources that have said that and I think he he does have a good um, good chain of thought as to why he's put that as the the time frame for a plyometric landing and takeoff um, because a lot of very high speed movements um, are done within that within that time frame and I think quality landings and takeoffs are within that time frame as well. I think as soon as you start to push past that, someone that's poor at, let's say, long jump or high jump, whatever it might be, if they are over that time frame, the likelihood is that they're not going to be that successful at it in terms of the outcome goal that they want from the, the takeoff. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a very a, a very large answer to your your question, but hopefully you can you can kind of understand that they're – there's a lot to plyometrics now and i think that we need to we we as a as a profession need to go down that down that rabbit hole a little bit and and really look into into movement itself because i don't think anyone has a clue how to organize movement i think it's a very big um task to go with to say like what can we categorize <laughs> all of these movements so i kind of like to do a little bit of pigeonholing of, of a lot of movement into plyometrics yeah and i think that's like that's just really interesting just trying to have you think more of like a principled kind of approach to kind of what you're doing so we can actually systematize it um is there anything kind of in particular i know you kind of looked at kind of ground contact times and things like that a little bit there are you finding anything maybe within your research i know if you said you go above that 0.25 kind of threshold it's i'm not going to say it's not plyometric in nature because you still got kind of that coupling action but is there anything that kind of you're seeing um i I th although we as as I've said about the the kind of time frame although we we're scared to go and go over that time frame I think that if you were to look at let's say for instance a um a two-foot bilateral um jump in basketball for let's say a world-class dunker these guys are in time frames of between probably 0.3 ish to kind of 0.4 and, and are we to stand back and say that's not very plyometric? I don't know. It's that that that's that intrigues me a lot. And I think that the the dunks world is is it's a slightly untapped kind of place at the moment. And it is it definitely is growing by all means. It's it's becoming almost a profession and they're trying to look to go into the Olympics, etc. But it's yeah, that really intrigues me. Um do we do we class that not as a, a, a plyometric? Um, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Maybe it's just in within jumps and takeoffs as a as a kind of different remit. Um, so that that in itself really intrigues me. Um, and I think that there are a lot of um, slightly longer takeoffs that, much like you could say the the high level depth jumps that that Verk Chansky might have put in there, that are probably going to be over that threshold too. Um, I also like to use movements that are. Um, a little bit deeper so I have I have a tiered system and in one of my tiers I have a, a support tier that looks at slightly deeper movements so if, let's say that you're in a split position these movements tend to go through kind of a natural stretch shortening cycle there is a landing and there is a takeoff sequence to it but you're going to be on the ground for around 
happened, you know, more likely towards 0.4, 0.5 of a second. Now, it's not, it's, not, it's not slow, but it's not fast in comparison to, let's say, a sprint stride that's a fifth of that time. Um, so, and I think those sort of movements also build a lot of capacities that support plyometric movements as well, um, which, is, which is really important. It's not very well researched, um, and it's kind of heavily towards what I do anecdotally within my programming and how I coach. That is always part of, um, of, of my coaching for plyometrics, um, and, and I'm kind of hoping to go down that, that avenue a little, a little bit maybe after my PhD, um, looking into kind of further research after I've um, got my doctorate. Yeah, so um, I think that we've you covered a lot of uh, your kind of your philosophies on uh, plyometrics there a little bit in detail. There's a lot that, that we can dive into. Um, I think whatever order might be best uh, to go and find out this, this, it's up to you, I think. But I think if we can almost have a look at how you um, classify your different tiers and then potentially how you might use those tiers to, um, especially from my perspective, it's quite good to know how you might introduce like a novice um, from those tiers and almost take them to a more elite level. Sure, sure. Um, so I kind of have a, let, let's, we'll just put it down as, as four tiers. You know, if I, if I go into super super specific then it does, it does potentially become more but i like to kind of generalize it into four structured tiers um and you'll be able to take from this whether they whether they fit within the the typical ideas of having intensive or extensive uh, capacities to them so we have we have a light tier we have a medium tier what i will call the ping tier just because i I took the phrase from my coach and we've always done done ping movements and I just it just sounds great and it does exactly what it says on the tin. And then we have the deep tier that I mentioned um, previously. The light tier is, as it says, is much more um, lighter, very kind of, uh, I would say, not necessarily the fastest ground contact, but they are pretty, pretty fast because the, the ground reaction forces tend to be quite low. Um, so you're talking about very kind of resilient movements where you're you're bouncing on the spot. People people will call them pose and things. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Those sort those sorts of movements. Um, and this this sort of tier is I think is great because it's it's your way into plyometrics as a novice. It's your way into plyometrics in a training session. Um, if you're about to start a training session, I will always start with light tier plyometrics. Let's just get the body moving. Let's get blood flowing. Let's get the brain firing. Um, let's get everything kind of uh, mapped in the right direction for you to, to start dynamic movement. And I think it has it, it drives really good tendencies with things like posture. You're able to to challenge the body a little bit more with the, the directions in which you can go because the ground reaction forces aren't particularly high. Um, and again, you can challenge the, the ground contact times. You can play around with these sort of movements. So instead of doing a pogo for height, can I do a pogo where I'm as fast as on the ground as possible? I'm not gonna necessarily get the height that I might get in a pogo, but these are the sort of variables that you're able to play with when you have a light tier. And I think that, I think that people, um, they tend to see past it a little bit and they're like, oh, this is a good way to use um, to use movements for, let's say, a warm-up or activation when actually 
I've I've used a lot of athletes. Um, so I've had a lot of athletes that have used just light tier pliers for a long periods of time. And these athletes are they're not necessarily novice athletes. These are pretty pretty well developed athletes, um, and it was fantastic for for improving things like ground contact time. Um, so yeah, we've got your light. Sorry, sorry just 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 sorry. Just before you move on to to that next tier, just while you're kind of on that point, because I think that's actually a really important point that if we stick with that example of, of pogos, for example, um, when I mean, you're saying you could have like a really elite athlete potentially staying with a, what would be classed as a basic exercise as a pogo for such a long period of time. And, and I'd completely agree. I think we try and completely overcomplicate like plyometrics and just building on a, like, on a really good foundation. But do you mind for maybe some people, some of the listeners that maybe not necessarily don't understand, but maybe don't understand the full benefits of just varying the type of a pogo. Cause I know that's something that we do with our training when, cause you talked about there, the height versus the, like the contact time difference. Do you mind saying kind of going into a little bit of detail there with maybe the different physiological adaptations we're looking at in those two variables? Sure. So, um, and to kind of start off with the, one of the fundamental principles for, for the, the plyometrics that I coach is are different variations of, of, of basic kind of movements. Um, and I think they are fundamental in building a program around an athlete that, um, you know, especially when, when, you, when you're looking at sports that are not so linear in motion. I think that these sorts of different variations of, of, of light tier especially um, are, are kind of fundamental in tissue building. So you're looking at tendon and ligament development um, where you're, you're playing with uh, variability of being able to increase the amount of volume that you may use for this sort of movement. So that you are going to get, you're, you're probably talking around maybe two, three, four times body mass upon landing, but you're able to do this. You'll be surprised most athletes will be able to have a, a pretty good capacity of being able to do quite high volume to these sort of movements. And over a period of three or four months, that volume will be able to go through the roof. You'll be really surprised in, in how, um, how capable athletes become with, with, uh, with higher volumes of, of light tier stuff. So I like to not just use bilateral movements. I think this, uh, it, the, the light tier are fantastic for teaching um, unilateral movements. And I think a lot of people do get a little bit scared with, we are very much stuck with the Pogo, um, the Pogo show at the moment. Everybody loves the Pogo. Um, and, and I question a lot, I kind of ask a lot more people to, to try out unilateral movements, especially within the light tier, because, because of the, the, the other neuromuscular and, uh, and motor patterning skills that you get from unilateral movements. So for example, um, so what I will term a hop is a left foot landing, landing on the same leg, or a right foot landing, landing on the same leg continuously. Now, the, the value of a hop is a kind of, it's special to me in that it, because the limb has to move at twice the speed as it would in a bound, um, you are, you're starting to create habits within the body that improve your ability to pre-activate the muscle um, and the tissue around these joints that are about to receive force, um, which is a very, very big correlation towards more elite athletes. So if you are seeing an athlete that is particularly, 
that you could say, I've got an athlete that's an elite guy, but they don't look particularly great when they hit the ground in a certain movement. And it, it, that might in sense be the way that they preactivate and anticipate the ground. The highest of the highest elite triple jumpers are able to preactivate uh, the musculature around, let's say, the ankle or the knee at around 80% of their, um, their, their maximal output is what they would get when they hit the ground. Um, so they are, they're able to really fire up muscles before they've even hit the ground. Like you are, you've got to think how much more that does for you in terms of improving your ground contact time and shortening that to a more of an optimal length and how that also supports stiffening effects when you're hitting the ground. So your ability to stiff, stiffen on the ground at the joint and, and not crumble through that joint when you're receiving all of these super high forces. So your ability to kind of couple that and use that energy from the, let's say the previous motion and then use it in the, 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 the movement after the, the takeoff so in your concentric phase is much greater when you're able to preactivate at a higher rate. Um, and this is, I would say, should be the, I think it was looked at maybe 10 years ago, but we've kind of forgotten about it. I, I, I put that on Twitter the other day to someone. I'm like, have we forgotten about preactivation and how valuable that is and what you get from hopping when you do that? Hopping teaches you to do that because you have to do that. Your body has to get ready for the ground because of the rate in which you're having to cycle that limb through. So you'll notice straight away it's someone that can't hop, it's someone that's tentative, that doesn't want to land. And then you watch an elite guy and they hit the ground. You watch an elite triple jumper, these guys are, they are really attacking the ground. And that's because they have the ability to preactivate and preactivate and, and anticipate. Um, so the light tier I think is a great, foundational level of building in pre-activation methods as well as building in um, neural patterns of being able to turn muscles on and on at a better rate i think you'll you'll also see this is this is also a great way to spot a, a novice mover or someone that's maybe a little bit more of a concentrically based athlete and you'll see that you'll you'll see that like all i ever see is this constant thud when my athlete hits the ground there's nothing that comes from it and the likelihood is that they're probably uh, co-contracting around the core at, a, at a, just a too high a rate. You know, when you've got a world-class sprinter, they're relaxed. When they hit the ground, they're obviously ready to go. But when they get off the ground, they're able to load, unload, load, unload. And light tier pliers gives you that capacity too. I think it teaches you those patterns about um, about landings and then your air-based. You don't want to be stiff in the air. That's what you'll see in beginners. They're, they're like, oh, damn, the, the ground is about to come again and I'm not ready for this. Whereas a, a natural um, kind of plyometric beast will, will hit the ground, relax, hit the ground, relax. And they turn on and off at very fast rates. And that's another benefit to light tier fires. I think so you can I learn a lot quicker from that as well. If you're going, like, like you said, right to right hops, they, if you don't get that leg back down, your face is going to hit the ground. So it's exactly. very, it's it's very much kind of do it right, or if you do it wrong, you're gonna you're gonna find out about it. Um, yeah. And if coming back to that kind of stiffness relaxation, that comes back to what the Russians the Russians sorry again like talked about and researched. Uh, was it Viktor Yunov? I think it was potentially. I probably maybe got that one wrong, but you know the kind of Russians and how they structured their five levels of athlete. 
and they found that their elite athletes could could relax and then contract a lot quicker than kind of their even elite athletes. So it was like their elite of elite, and then what they call level five, and there's level four athletes. There was like a 50% difference between those kind of elite, elite of elite, level five, and then the elite athletes, which is which is pretty amazing when you think of it, kind of coming back to what you're what you're talking about there. Just on that kind of hopping again, are you looking at, especially early on with athletes, because some people might be thinking now, but do you not think like right to right that hopping style might be quite intensive now would you start athletes off especially youth athletes i mean my opinion is they're hopping quite a lot in the playground anyway they don't care about like new balances and stuff like that so would you think if they would you start them off potentially just because we like to have a system as a strength and conditioning coaches that we maybe start with like shorter right to right hops and then progress length and, and height and intensity and kind of do it that way or would you, would you just be tempted kind of like they are in the playground and just be like, let rip, let's see what happens? Um, I, I think it's it's always nice to have a, a slight assessment of things before you get started. Um, and I, I think I've, I've kind of started to build a set of eyes now that I could see someone walk into an area or a gym or a facility and I'm like, yeah, you can't hop, you can you can't. <laughs> and that's, that's, just a, that's just having a, a very large background of no experience watching how people move and stuff like that. But I think that if you're, if you're going to use something like a, a unilateral hop and do remember that a, unilat- uh, a hop, so movement on the same leg is very different to a bound. Please do not get it twisted with thinking that, okay, I'm going to progress my athlete now to unilateral movements. They can bound great. And then I put them in this hole of a hop <laughs> and what's going on? Why isn't my athlete able to move? They're so, so different. In, in what they are as, as movements. And I, I term them as you have your unilateral bipedal movement, which is bounding. You have two legs at that point and your unilateral unipedal movement, which is you only have one limb. So you can, you have got to work that limb at a much higher rate. So um, going back to kind of assessing and how to start things off, my, my, my mentor and coach, Eric Little, always used to, we, I would go to, go with him to um, to squad days in track and field, and he would he would get me to do examples and show things about like this. This was about maybe 10, 11 years ago. Um, and he would just line people up and just say, right, just start to hop on the spot. Just pick your foot up, okay? Pick it up over the ankle. And you'd be like, keep hopping. Okay, now now try and pick it up over the, over the calf. Let's see what happens. And then you just see people fall apart. There's certain people that are still moving really well. And then one or two, you're like, okay, yeah, you can relax. Maybe switch to your other leg. Let's see how that, that, uh, that changes left to right. That's also a big thing is 90% of your athletes probably can hop, but they probably can't hop on the other leg. So you've got 90% that probably can hop. And then another 90% on top of that that can't, can definitely not hop on their other leg. So <laughs> you're, you have to look at it both sides. Because like I said, you can have a fantastic mover on their left leg, but oh damn they've never used their right leg before <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's it's you, you have to look at both sides um but yeah just just play with these things just start on a smaller amplitude as you you mentioned kind of what's the the best method to go with it start small build big you could also do i, I like to set up games for young kids and you can do things like tag but you're, you, you can only hop you know pick up pick up your right leg behind you with your with your hand and you have to hop and tag each other. What methods are the kids using to hop? If they do not pick their leg up over the over the, the knee, 
that probably means that they are not that capable of hopping very well. So they'll use a, uh, a much easier method for them where their leg doesn't come and climb over so much and then receive such a higher ground reaction force. The more you pick it up, the more load you're gonna get on the next um, takeoff is the way to look at it. So you'll see someone move around where they don't pick up their, their foot as much, um, which, is, which is a great method to test things out, I think. And, and people, you know, if a, if, a kid, if a kid can't do it, then they'll probably just drop their other leg. Kids are pretty, you know, we're, humans are pretty good with that sort of stuff. We'll be like, no, I can't do that. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give up pretty quickly. There will be some kids that are fantastic and they move well, but you can assess it really quickly with how, how well they pick that, that leg that's striking the ground up. Nice. I like, I like that a lot. So then just if we kind of slide down that continuum a little bit, we're getting towards kind of that, and you classed it the medium intensity. How, how does kind of that look as we continue getting further and further kind of towards those, I think you termed the final tier, like deep, was it deep plyos? Yeah, the deep um, stuff, yeah. 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 How does the rest of that continuum look out? So, so your, your medium tier is what I will class your bread and butter. So like your light tier is... I like to think as the light tier and the, the deep tier as my supportive tiers. They are, they are my, the base of my pyramid and they're going to support a lot in terms of keeping me healthy, building all these patterns in. Now I have my medium and ping tier that aren't very far away from each other, but my medium tier seems to be being categorized as extensive at the moment by everyone uh, on social media. And my ping tier becomes my, in well, it doesn't actually become my intensive tier. It still sits within the extensive tier because no one seems to think that anything other than, than a depth jump is, is intensive. Um, so my medium tier is my bread and butter stuff. It is a lot of hopping, bounding, leaping, jumping, um, and you are using sub-maximal capacities to do it. It's pretty intense, don't get me wrong. Um, you're still gonna get high ground reaction forces. And if you're using a novice athlete, they're probably going to find it the most intense thing they've ever done. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my, your medium tier is probably the main bulk of what you're going to be using day to day throughout the whole of your athletic calendar um, when it comes to plyometric movements. And that is that is the basis of building, you could say, a plyometric capacity. It is preparing you for the most intense movements that you're probably going to only probably only going to do a few of those in within a week, um, and yeah, as as it kind of as as it says, the continuum kind of goes up to the ping tier, which is doing things for maximal intent. It is, you know, it is leaps for height. So you could say maximal pogos for height could be a uh, a ping tier movement, um, and. People will say, well, they're not as intensive as, as a depth jump. Well, if I've got an athlete that's jumping 60 centimetres into the air and coming down from that height, hitting the ground and jumping another 60 centimetres into the air, that's pretty damn similar to a depth jump. So that's, that's how I categorise my, my ping tier movements. It's about being as dynamic, as fast and as powerful on the ground as possible. Um, so yeah, any questions around that? Um, and then I'll, I'll, I can kind of move on to the, the deep tier stuff if you want. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about how um, in, in practice, you can see athletes kind of land uh, differently sometimes. Some, a bit like you talked about, they'll be really loud on the ground and look quite rigid. Some will be quite light and quite absorbent. Like, 
is there something to be said about queuing for a certain type of landing? So, oh, can you try and land soft or land hard? Um, it almost sounds like you're saying if they're too noisy, it sounds like there's a bit of like wasted energy there. I don't know if I'm on the right line. Is that sort of right or? Yeah, to a, to a certain extent. I think it's very much to do with the actual type of sound. Like we can all recognize like a thud, right? We can all recognize that kind of splat on the ground that doesn't, it's, it's not kind of aesthetically pleasing to your ears. You, if, if you were to see world-class triple jumping, this is the best, the best um, example of it. You can hear the crisp rip of the track when they hit the ground. It's, it's crisp, it's, one, it's normally one kind of bang, one good sound, but plyometrics aren't quiet. And there's this, we must land like cats kind of idea with plyometrics, which is, I've, I've never seen anyone land like a cat because cat, cats for a starter, they started, they, they, they're not built as we are. They, they, they walk on their hind foot on their back legs. They have four limbs. They have, their actual foot is, is probably five times the length of what a human, if our foot was proportioned to a cat's, we would have size 50 feet. It, it just doesn't go down like that. So the way that their, their back legs are built is for absorption. It's for propulsion from that static stance and then for absorption as they land. And they land like a parkour runner. They want to soften everything. We, we don't want to do that. I want to hit the ground and keep moving. Pretty much all sports like that. There's not much, not much in sport where you, you want to land on a dime and be quiet like a cat. So, yeah, it's... It's about um, it's about learning as a coach what good sounding movement is. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's part of your development as a coach. It, it's exactly the same as hearing a barbell ching, right? When you want someone to drive with intent, you hear that ching at the top of the top of the movement. You're like, well, you're obviously hitting that hitting that well, and you can test it with you know a gym aware or whatever you start to understand that movement and the better your athletes start to move, you'll start to go, actually, that, that is the right sound for you as an athlete. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers. Yeah. So it's almost like, it's not like you have to work out what the sound is you're looking for, um, but not necessarily cue people in or out of it. It almost sounds like it would be difficult to coach somebody to achieve the sound. Maybe it's something where you've just got to expose them to the right, you know, level of extensive or the the light tier plyos first. Let let them build it up then, and then you, you might hear that sound during those exercises, and then you go, oh, okay, well then, when you do versus don't hear that sound, that's when you've kind of hit the nail on the head. Yeah, exactly. So what what you like going back to that kind of example is that if you were let's say that you're using bilateral leaps in light tier movements and you're getting a real crisp sound, well, as soon as you go to a ping tier of saying I want it maximally and the sound completely changes, what's happening is is the ground contact time just far too long, or is there too much absorption at the joint, or yeah, are all these things in that are not in the right places happening, or you know, so I think yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I, I think that's yeah. I would probably use that as a as, as an example in the future. Actually, I like that. I'll take that one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that on that point as well. On that point as well, is it like you said, if you've gone from a light to a maybe obviously you're doing some like ping activities, um, and we we stay with kind of that sound. Would you be tempted to be like, okay, because the sound is different, we don't quite have the same maybe like pop so to speak that we 
typically see in our like pogos, for example, all of a sudden we've got kind of that longer joint coupling action, then are you, is, is that maybe an indicator for you that, okay, well, maybe the volume, we just completely cut back on the volume. We just sprinkle a little bit of these kind of ping tier stuff in there. We take it away and then we slowly dose little bits back in until we start seeing that same type of pop effect that we get in the light tier. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, a really, really yeah solid method to, to kind of go with. I think that, don't get me wrong, you're you're never you're you're always going to have certain movements that are never going to sound as as easy as other movements you know it's there's all there is also that issue with things when you start to do things for maximal intent which actually aren't necessarily what will happen in sport you know for someone like yourself chris there probably aren't many maximal movements in tennis do you know what i mean like there's not a hundred percent efforts it's a very precision-based sport as well with skills so the likelihood for your capacity to be a hundred percent or within a very very high bracket is probably for a very small period of time within the game so mm-hmm. actually being being very good at sub-maximal capacities is is also where we want to be so the ping tier or even the stuff um of, of depth jump stuff it doesn't necessarily have to be always perfect so it might not necessarily sound so our light tier and our medium tier stuff might sound very similar but as soon as we go absolutely flat out the ping tier stuff might not sound as good or it might not look as perfect um but you know that that is where we're applying force that's our maybe that's our more towards our force end of the spectrum um and we're, we're able to to get more out of medium tier stuff where we're working purely on shortening the ground contact time so like i said you're always working along that spectrum um and and how relevant it is to the sport in particular is also important yeah and i think you no know, it comes back to that earlier point that you made that which i know we've actually talked about before on a previous call that no one ever and i've said this for quite a long time but no one ever produces force quietly and that's the thing that coming back to that cat analogy and that's the thing that it just kind of frustrates me you know if you're trying to you see a car kind of taking off like a drag race or anything it's there's a lot of sound going on because they're trying to create a lot of horsepower put that into the ground they don't all of a sudden just set off in first gear and take their time you know so that's kind of the analogy that just that i just think of there but yeah uh, no that's fantastic uh, and then just getting on to kind of that deep tier like what that maybe looks like yeah so the the deep tier is kind of as it as i said is as it sounds it is it's about it is about absorbing more force around the joint and People will say, oh, there's not very plyometric in nature, and it is more of a support tier. Um, but it is part of my plyometric family because I, I think it brings a hell of a lot of qualities that are really important to being successful at very dynamic plyometric movements. And that's in improving things like dynamic posture, being able to, to deal with eccentric loads through longer positions as well which i don't think you get like a i think people use like overcoming eccentrics or um or things within the weight room and you're like you really don't understand what it's like to try and deal with eccentric force from a landing and then to get out of that at the same sort of rate um so that's all we're like using a split stance is the, is the best example for that like, and we will use like a, a bilateral split exchange leap um when you pop for height and you come back down and receive that load in a deep split and get back out of it you start to understand how the body starts to couple that 
energy. So when you're receiving that energy upon hitting the ground and then when you're trying to use it to get out of it, and again, it, will, it, it really does show maybe issues and deficiencies within the athlete as they move. It's a, it's a great way to, um, to assess it again. It's, I think it's really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. And then, so if we just kind of move on a little bit now. So we've talked, like, we've talked a tiny little bit about maybe the different, well, different athletes and things like that. You mentioned uh, tennis a bit, but how do you kind of take your approach with like a, a court sport athlete or a field sport athlete maybe to a, like a track and field athlete? Because a lot of people try and take that track and field model and try and fit kind of square pegs in round holes. And it doesn't always it doesn't always work. So, what's your kind of opinion on that, and how does that look? Yeah, so I think you you always have to look at the like I will always look at the positions of a sport, and you know how much time in tennis do you do you spend, or whatever court sport, um, how much time do you spend at like max velocity, or how much time do you spend producing the most force possible when you're stood up you spend a lot of time in acceleration mechanics you spend a lot of time um, in changing change of direction mechanics so it's about building a program that will facilitate you know a couple of those points um, so using large varieties of uh of, of multi-plane multi-directional based movements is very important so that in itself drives a lot of submaximal metrics because you can't we are linear beasts we are not um, we we can we can move very well kind of side to side maybe in a more of a diagonal motion as we move but actually moving moving left to right and moving backwards is not in our forte as as animals so we can be very maximal in this direction but we can't really be maximal in those directions i don't think personally um we can be we can be kind of, we can be up there, we can be at 90%, maybe a bit above that, but we cannot be, I, I, I don't like things like people using lateral depth jumps. I'm not sure on them. I prefer to use a lot more, um, a lot more drills that are kind of organizing the body themselves. It's, it's in ways in which you're figuring things out rather than just chucking someone off a box and going, well, we hope that the body will understand what that feels like to fall from that height. So I use things like medium tier plyometrics to do either lateral leaps or moving back and forth based stuff or um, unilateral movements. So like using things like skater bounce is fantastic. If you've ever used them before there and I use them in a, in a very short, sharp, rigid variation, as well as a deep tier one where we're really absorbing load. We're become we're genuinely becoming <laughs> ice skaters at that point. So it's, yeah, it's very much about using submaximal stuff in the in the different directions and planes, and more maximal stuff in more of our linear based or just up and down kind of base movements. Mm-hmm. To try and use the use the body as it's built, raise the ceiling, and hopefully that will kind of bring everything up and those other physical qualities up with it. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So we we talked about as well, I think. Maybe at the very start, maybe it was off camera, I can't remember now actually. But different types of plyos and using things like assisted plyos and stuff like that. What do you see as kind of the main benefits? Uh, Because there's obviously with like triphasic training and things like that coming out from Carl Dietz, band assisted, like overspeed has become like quite a big thing, becoming more and more popular as the kind of years and Instagram posts go by. So 
what kind of are the benefits that are really derived from band assisted uh, training and jumps? Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know if this is just bias of me. I don't know if it's me being lazy to try this form of training. I have not done much in terms of, you know, the typical band assisted where you hook it around a, a chin up bar and you're using it in your hands here and driving the body up in a, in a bilateral way. I, I like it to an extent, but I think it's very one dimensional in the, in the capacity that it drives. Um, because I've used it on the track where we pull people and we use band assisted pulls, um, which I find when you're, when you're working the horizontal side of things, I think it, it brings a hell of a lot more in. So you want to try band assisted pulls for a hop and it's accelerating that leg into the ground uh, <laughs> even faster, right? Yeah, it's, it is, yeah, it be, I mean, it, it becomes at the opposite end of the spectrum because obviously the band assisted stuff is, is to, to take the load off and you're working the more, the faster um, ground contact time. Um, so I understand that you are, you're trying to play with the different ends of the spectrum with the, the force velocity curve, if you, if you would say that plyometrics even fits on the force velocity curve, which I think is also a, a too simpler way to to place it as well. I think that when you're when you're playing around with with landings, I think that it, it changes it slightly differently because realistically, I'm trying to be as fast and as powerful as possible um, when it comes to when it comes to plyometric movement. So when you play with the the spectrum of the force velocity curve, it doesn't really fit within that because actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no way that you'd be able to to put my hopping capacity on your back and lift it um Mm -hmm. and it's going to be way quicker than it it is for you to be able to squat it so um so yeah that i I, i'm sorry to say it but i don't have that much of an opinion on the assisted stuff um Mm -hmm. and that's because i i always think that there's a lot more to be gained from doing lighter tier based stuff we played Mm -hmm. around with We've played around with the the partnered stuff where you're using each other's shoulders. That's quite good, but you are bringing in you are bringing in the side of a a higher ground reaction force because you are giving yourself more height. Um, so, <laughs> what are your thoughts, Chris, on it? I'm I'm intrigued to to hear what you. Oh what wow! You, what... Flipping the action here. Wow. Okay. Um, I think similar to yourself actually um to a degree like i've used it a little bit i've used it in my training i don't think i'm the type of athlete that really benefits from it that much but i think if you've potentially now i don't necessarily think you need to be a super elite athlete to be able to use it which is interesting because i've used it with some tennis players for example who really struggled to produce force quickly not necessarily because they're weak and things like that it's maybe just because they've never actually experienced what that feels like so for me, like just being able to take maybe an extra 30% of their body weight off of them and then maybe go into some bandage-assisted jumps so they can feel what that actually feels like. Now, this is another thing. I haven't actually tested my theory in terms of let's do some band-assisted jumps. So like pre-test, jump test, band-assisted jumps, post-test. Do you get like a pop effect or anything kind of going on there? But I definitely think there's that kind of overspeed training effect. And it really is athlete dependent because personally, I don't think it works that well for like me. But I've had other athletes that quite like it. Now, whether that's a novelty effect as well, I don't know. Um, it looks it looks cool, and we sure. 
Who doesn't want yeah. to jump a meter in the air? Yeah, I, I think exactly, what, yeah. what always conflicts in my mind is that it tries to be very much like over speed work um, with, a, with a 1080, which is, mm -hmm. is actually the opposite of what you were getting because you are not eccentrically loading the body as you do in overspeed. In overspeed stuff and downhill running, you are getting a higher eccentric loading. In banded assisted jumps, you are reducing the eccentric load. Mm -hmm. So although it's resisting you as it pulls you, your leg is hitting the ground faster, which is in turn giving you a higher eccentric spike. So mm -hmm. what you get in terms of adaptational side of things is quite different. I, I couldn't give you the mm -hmm. physiological processes of what's happening because I don't think I'm qualified to to try and even get into it. But mm -hmm. I don't think that you are building the capacity that you want in an overspeed drill. So if I run at 10 meters per second and I want to run 10.5, well, if I pull myself at 10.5, I'm training the eccentric loading to a capac to a certain extent of mm -hmm. what I would experience at 10.5. I'm not doing that. when I, If I want to jump one meter in the air and I have to use a band to do that, I'm not getting the eccentric loading that I would normally get falling from a meter to try and then equal it. And that's, mm -hmm. that's some of my issue that comes with it. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's a fantastic point. And it's, that's where like I've used the, if we sit, call it hands assisted variation, which I think you touched on before yeah. where we can, we can jump and we can use our hands to give us more height, which is fantastic because we get a little bit of an overspeed, but then equally we get that, overspeed eccentric as well which is where i think more of the adaptations coming from and i think potentially that's why i don't find it very useful when i do it personally um and i think that's quite a highly potent stimulus as well if we're going hands assisted jumps because when we get like i said we're getting the overspeed jump but then we're getting the over overspeed and overloaded stretch um on that achilles tendon and then we can really slingshot ourselves back up that's where i think it can be used really well i think that is quite a potent stimulus and i think you've and this could be something else. I mean, what do you, how, how often would you think using that? Because I think it is quite potent and I wouldn't want to use it too often because, again, your body just gets adapted to it and just bluntens its response. Yeah, yeah, I, I would probably agree. Um, I actually think as well that you would get a really nice response from a split version. I haven't actually tried it, but I'd be intrigued to see what, if people play with that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, probably it's probably this certain thing that you might put in like a four-week block as you're coming into like a – hypercompensation period where you're like you're just gonna you're gonna chuck them in a bit of a hole for four weeks and then see what comes out of it um but then you probably won't touch it for another four months do you know what i mean like it yeah it's one yeah. of those one of those um and i think you'd have to do a lot to get to that place as well mm -hmm. like i would like to see a lot of other movement that, to, for you to get the real adaptation out of it because i think that a lot of people will play with it and they'll be like oh yeah i feel great from doing it but you're like well adaptational side of it you might feel good doing it I don't mean it's actually giving you what you hope for it to give you in your performance and outcome of the performance. So, yeah, that that side of it is, you know, it's a bit hearsay and people yeah, anecdotally yeah. say this and this. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that's kind of giving you a little bit of an insight to what I think. Yeah, no, that. definitely. I think I think that's definitely like gives a lot of people an insight into kind of maybe the reasons why they should or should not do it, depending on the situation. I think this is the important thing to put into context: the situation of that individual athlete that's not something like i said earlier that's not something i would give to all my athletes maybe some of them that struggle with certain aspects or need a certain stimuli or stimulus um i just want to kind of i know we're getting on a little bit on the time here so i want to be want to be wary of that i have got two questions 
left that I've kind of just made the page of notes here. But I want to touch on the female athlete because I know we have talked about that before and I think it's it's important to understand. So when it comes to the female athlete and plyometrics, are there any differences between kind of the male counterpart or, or like what are you – I know it's – I think from what we were talking about earlier, that maybe the research is a little bit kind of up and down, but what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think – the the research touched upon similar stuff to how you would see tendon adaptation that's a big part of it um there are obviously differences with hormonal responses with how um tendons and um and and soft tissue are adapting when you compare a male and a female athlete so that you know tendons are your your friend in plyometrics if you if if we didn't have tendons we wouldn't be doing plyometrics we would just be lifting weights and so on the the female side of things, I will always use um, just a, just a, a slightly tweaked version of how I would look at a male's program, and that's purely based on um, on tensile strength and the, and the capacity for a male to be able to to impart more force at a higher rate. Um, so it tends to be that the guys like to have a lot more hard hitting stuff. Maybe not so much. It doesn't have to be a massive stimulus, but there. If you were to look at ten, if you're going to do ten movements in a program per se, well, let's say that six of them are, are real ping-based movements. They're really intensive stuff. Um, well, the females might be might have the flip of that, and they might be using seven sub-maximal movements and three maximal movements. And I think that's purely to do with how um, how we are we are adapting the the tendon tissue. Um, and I think that the females tend to do better um, with higher volumes of submaximal work. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be in the research quite yet. I haven't personally seen it. So please do let us know if you've seen some research on females and using extensive in comparison to intensive versions of pliers. But you know, that's something that I'd love to touch upon um, later on in my academic career is to look at these sort of variabilities when it comes to female and male. There's so much to do with it in strength training, but we haven't really touched upon it in the in the speed world or the the plyometric mm-hmm. world. But there, there may be stuff in the speed world. I'm not hugely ver- well versed in the speed world of, of research. I don't think in comparison to fires. But well, I, th- I think that's interesting actually as well because that's something that I have noticed that the females typically do deal with a higher volume of, if we use your terminology there, the, those kind of light plyos, just really building up a, like a a good base of uh, robustness essentially, and they don't seem to get. They don't seem to really get bored of it either. Whereas the guys that they want that kind of novel stimulus all the time. You've got to think, even if it's like you want to stick with your pogos, for example, you've got to think of different ways to make like a pogo interesting at times. Um, <laughs> which is like there's only so many ways you can pogo, but I mean you can definitely stretch a pogo uh, a good degree. But I just I've definitely found that uh, with the females versus males in that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and the. There's there's a there's a lot to go into when you're when you're looking at the different um, different types of plyometrics that you're using when it comes to submaximal versus maximal stuff and it 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 does tend to be that the the females prefer more bilateral and bounding based movements where I found that the boys potentially like more hopping based stimulus and that's probably because of the the intensity of the of the stimulus apart from one female triple jumper that I had that would hop for the whole training session if, if, if I made her she's just yeah unbelievable <laughs> I kind of just want to jump in on that one quickly because just in relation to like my environment I've kind of noticed the same 
and the females prefer the submaximal thing in like in the weight room just because it takes a lot of psychological i guess engagement and readiness to commit that hard to something that intense so maybe it's transferring across to the plyo world as well where there's it's kind of rare to find the, the female individuals that really want to push max strength whereas they're w- way more just I guess their engagement is they just would prefer to do more sub-maximal, higher volume. It's just maybe there's not anything specific behind it, but it's like a general bias, I think, to just, just preferring that anyway and not being psychologically ready to fully commit 100% to to those things because it takes yeah. a lot of things to line up, I think, maybe and just move uh, and how you feel. Yeah, so. I, think, I think it's probably quite primal in that we, we as the men would have been the fast kind of hunters and they would have been the, the endurance animals that would have been looking after the herd of our family all day long sort of thing so there's there's different tendencies to how we are i think as as humans and that might fit primarily back to the weight room and doing plyometrics and speed work or whatever it might be so yeah i can i I can relate so much to it when it comes to the submaximal versus maximal in females and males so um i think it's a really interesting topic as well Perfect. No, I think that's a and that's a good point to finish on. I know we're just over the hour mark here, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know it's getting a little bit late, kind of where you are. But thank you very much for coming on. Just before we go, do you mind telling kind of people? I know you've got a few little projects going on now. Kind of maybe tell people where they can find you, where they can find out more about those projects and things. Yeah. So um, I, I'm very active on Instagram, so you can find me at McInnes Watson, M C I N N E S Watson. Um, that's on Instagram and Twitter, but I'm mostly vocal on on Instagram. Um, and I also have a, a plyometric training program um, online business where you can pick up and grab um, plyometric workouts uh, for a whole range of sports. We've got volleyball players to um, track and field athletes to dunkers to basketball players, tennis players. Um, and you can subscribe uh it's at plusplyers.com or you can go to plusplyers um which you'll find on instagram as well so yeah that's that's kind of the the, the main the main things i'm uh getting into at the moment but there there will be developments on those on those bits uh, within the next few months especially um so yeah keep your eyes peeled for it and if you love plyometric content come to my instagram page <laughs> <laughs> There you go. No, absolutely. I would advise anyone to head over there and have a look at various programs and, and like the high quality information that, that you definitely put out on Instagram. So, but here we are, we'll, we'll close it out now. So thank you very much uh, for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I know uh, Ash does as well. Uh, and I, I've got pages worth of notes here. So, so thank you. <laughs> thank you very much guys. Cheers, Matt. Thanks.